Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Jake Grantham. Jake is the co-founder of Anglo-Italian, probably one of the most talked about retail stores out of London right now. Jake and I discuss his life growing up in Wimbledon, the world of classic menswear, and how in his eyes, hardcore music and tailoring have a lot more in common than what you think. Let's do it. Mr. Jacob Grantham, Jake Grantham. JJ for sure. JJ. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, this is fun because you and I worked together at one point, and I remember you were kind of a big um, introduction and further explanation of like my sartorial journey at one point. That's very flattering, Jeremy. Thank you. No, I'm serious, because you and I met at the very beginning when I had started at the Armory, and you were the cool dude in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's that's right. I don't know about the cool dude, but that's very <laughs> flattering. We, Yeah, that's right. You came out to Hong Kong, and we did karaoke. That was an infamous night. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff happened, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's, I, I remember I ripped my pants. Yeah, I was going to mention them. I wasn't sure if you wanted that. <laughs> no, and so the public domain. No, yeah, I, I totally destroyed my pants. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, whatever. There was, Papa Roach was involved. That's right. Yeah. It no, was it, was, it was a fantastic time. It was time. a wonderful time. It was a wonderful time. But um, now you're doing your own thing. You're doing really well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And obviously your background, how you got into tailoring. Sure. So where are you from originally? I was born and raised in London. I... I had always, I grew up in Fulham, which is in southwest London, and then moved to Wimbledon, uh, which is a bit of an unusual part. It's Tennis very, Town? Tennis Town. It's amazing, actually. <laughs> it's a wonderful part of London. It's where, um, it's kind of where the country meets the city. Uh, the, the tennis comes for two weeks every year, and it's like Wimbledon, this little suburb in London is just the center of the universe for two weeks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you live in the town, you get tickets to see the tennis usually and strawberries and cream strawberries and yeah strawberries and cream and you, it's just the, you line up in the queue uh not if you're well not, not if you're, you're a resident yeah exactly it's <laughs> great and um yeah so it was wonderful and then i my first foray into um design i suppose was that i started playing in hardcore punk bands when from the age of like 14 uh, up until up until my sort of like late teens and I would design the pins and design the flyers and the t-shirts and merchandise. I was very fortunate that I got signed when I was 17 and then moved to a much bigger label when I was 18. And it was just this life-changing experience where I got to go on tour and make records and design things. Wait, wait, hold on. Uh, we won't get have too... I jumped, have I jumped? No, no, no we won't get too deep into that, mm. but I definitely wanted to... What makes a guy do a punk band and then get signed at a young age. Sure. So <laughs> hardcore in general is quite a young genre, I suppose. Young in terms of the, pe- the participants. Right. right? So yeah, obviously yeah. it started, you know, like 80s with, uh, you know, Black Flag and Minor Thread and, you know, even before that perhaps. And then obviously evolved into what hardcore has kind of become now, which is a much more broad, eclectic, you know, uh, it, it kind of borrows a lot more than it used to. You know what I mean? It's much yeah. more, uh, yeah, much more interesting perhaps than it used to be. And um, yeah, I, I, the first hardcore show I ever went to actually was really into kind of more melodic kind of stuff. And a friend of mine said, listen, there's this band um, that I really like. Let's go and check them out. 
I noticed the support band was the band that I really liked, and we watched the band that I liked. Very genteel kind of uh, Emo, apple seed, sort of? yeah, apple seed cask. That apple kind of se- oh my god! Okay, yeah, yeah. That I know kind what of you're it was about. it was a band called Kids New Water, and uh, anyway, I had like an EP of theirs, and I went to go see them live. And on came this band called November Coming Fire, and the guy had like these guys were all in like black hoodies and you know straight edge tattoos on their necks, and uh, you know. I think in that era, like black fingernail paint and stuff, you know, and they just, they played to like 50 people in this club and it was like life changing. And from that point onwards, I was like, yep, this is what I want to do. So I made a really bad band. um, (laughs) And in my former life, when I was playing, um, when I, you know, when you're a kid and you're like 13 and you make a shit band that's kind of, um, you know, Coldplay covers, whatever the hell it was. Oh yeah. I couldn't sing and I was really embarrassed I couldn't sing. And, um, at one point, the guys was in a band were like, this isn't really working out. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And it was one of the most like relieving, it's probably the only thing I've ever been fired from, and it was quite a relief anyway. So I couldn't sing, I can't sing. But, you know, then I saw that I didn't have to sing. I could, there was another way. I could, you know, shout. And um, Well, there's some, there's some melody in shouting. Yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, I'm being maybe a bit unfair to it, but it's... Um, you didn't you didn't vibe with the previous band, and so you were like, you know what, you guys stink anyway. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm gonna do it differently, and so that was it. So then, yeah, just the intention was to, um, you know, form a band, and then the ambition was to write a song, and the ambition was to put out a demo, and then you know, like incrementally, the goals just kept kept growing. And well, uh, very few bands get signed, though. That's the thing that I, I'm like, yeah, you know. it still flummoxes me, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We did something that was a bit unusual. We mixed sort of, uh, you know, our influences weren't just like the kind of straight hardcore that was happening at the time in London. It was, you know, we mixed a bit of the Smiths. We mixed kind of some older stuff. We right. threw in some kind of like uh, very clean guitar sounds. We took out all the breakdowns. We, um, yeah, we had sort of like, we were described as Lightning like intelligent, in intelligent hardcore, which is in, it infers like other hardcore isn't intelligent, which isn't fair to say, but um yeah, it was just great. And then finally, the last thing on my checklist after getting signed and going on tour and putting out CDs. Um, it's weird talking about CDs, isn't it? Like, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, okay. You're like a CD. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Younger listeners, that's what we used to play uh, music <laughs> on. And um, yeah, and that was it. And then once it was done, I was done with it. I was just, I was 18, had sort of done it all. Wow. and just just thought, not done at all that sounded very arrogant like done everything on my little checklist to do actually the last thing to do was to play um Wembley sorry no 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 (laughs) No, I mean again I don't want to give your listeners any misconceptions about you know the size of the band but you know we we got offered a European tour and so that was the last thing on my list to play outside of the UK wow and I did that and as we came back from we were coming back from Holland um I had was fed up with the guitarist and uh, him and I had a big argument and I left him in Essex with his amps that were like, um, wait, you know, th- <laughs> wait, you had like this knockdown drag out thing where you left a band member behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And were so guys, we were sponsored John by Orange Amps. Yeah, we were sponsored by Orange Amps. You know, you know how heavy oh, Orange yeah. Amps are. Anyway. Oh, yeah, so, I had an eighty thirty. Very nice. <laughs> so these amps were like taller than him, and I was like, nah, I'm gonna get the fuck out of here. Left him on the side of the road, and. Uh, and that was it. I never ever saw him again. Well, I'm sure something happened. I mean, you don't have to talk about it. But uh, he, sure was, he was something just... happened that made it not work. I mean, yeah, he I've was... known you. You have you have a bit more patience. Than oh, that. that's very kind, Jeremy. That's very kind. Um, yeah, he <laughs> he was just not a 
not a straight shooting kind of guy. He would sort of uh, say no more. Yeah, understood. And uh, and that was it. I was fed up with it. And yeah, so I achieved everything I wanted to do band wise, and that was it. And then I went home. Was quite melancholic for a while. And mm, my mum said, you know, so what's next? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'd always love suits back at school in Wimbledon. You know, my I'd save up all my money, all my pocket money, and all my Christmas money, and my Easter money, or whatever it was. And um, no, I'd never got money for Easter. I don't know why I said that. It's not a thing. <laughs> and uh, you didn't? I got I got a dollar and a silver egg. Oh That's really? Okay. Well, I don't know. I don't know how much you could spend. I don't know what your purchasing power is with that. But, <laughs> um, we we'd go to my mum and I would go to Harrods on the last day of the sale. And I would buy, and because I was quite small, you know, smaller than your average Harrods customer, perhaps like a 46, whatever. Yeah. I would just buy a suit and I'd oh, have snap. it tailored and I would then get a, myself a little pocket square. And, you know, I had two suits. There were, one was a pinstripe, one was a navy. And um, I was just, yeah, I would show up to school. And I remember the first day of sixth form, which is when you can wear your own suits when you're 16. I delivered this memo to a teacher. And uh, the teacher made me stand on the desk and say, so this is the best dressed boy that's ever come to the school. Please acknowledge what he's got on. And she was really supportive of me. It was really sweet. Oh, my God. And it was kind of crazy. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to go on a tangent, but, you know, when I, I'd always been really interested in tailoring. It's a good, it's a good feeling, I think, you know, to, to, to feel like to be put together. I mean, I, I hate to use the word uniform because it can be kind of trite, but the fact of... Um, oh, I, I just seen Goodfellas too many times. <laughs> I wish maybe. I could. It, it's funny growing up in London. There's this real. It's so tailored culture. Tailoring culture is so part of our DNA. Right. You know, you go to school at 16 and you're wearing suits. That's the norm. You know. Uh, oh, you okay. you you go to dinner like the, and this is just jackets. regular school. Yeah, London day school. Um, oh, okay. And. Yeah, when you, you know, up until 16, you wear a uniform with a little badge on it. And then when you turn 16, you get to wear your own suit. And it's meant to prepare you for dressing and, you know, presenting yourself for work. And yeah. Right. Totally. And I'd always just loved Goodfellas. I remember my 18th birthday party, I made, uh, um, I made everyone wear suits. It seemed like the normal <laughs> thing to do. No, that's cool. And um, I think we watched Goodfellas and, uh, you know, had some drinks. That was, that was it. And, um, so yeah, I'd always, I'd always sort of aspire to dress that way. And I kind of liked that, um, that element of sort of like danger or, or interest that came from wearing it. You know, I'd be in a bar and with my, I'd be in a restaurant with my parents or something and a dude in an amazing suit would walk by and I'd always just be like intoxicated by it. You yeah. Know? Or an old, I still get it. Like a, my poor long suffering wife, whenever an amazingly dressed old man walks past, I'm, you know, my head's turning and I'm you know, taking it all in, it's just always been intoxicating for me. There is definitely a sense of mystique when you see someone walk in the room, because I don't know if a suit does that, and maybe it's because, especially now, when just people sometimes look just kind of slumpy, um, you know, and they're like, oh, I want to be comfortable, but you see someone that's put together, and you're like, what is that guy, what does that guy get? Like, how does he understand the world that I'm not getting it? And you just see that, that you know, mystique of a well-dressed person. Well, Again, not to go down another tangent, but what I find fascinating about tailoring and always have is that it's a genre of dress, right? Like hardcore is a genre of music. Hardcore, a hardcore record, if you do something very subtle in it to the outside world, they'll just hear screaming and shouting and heavy drums and guitars. But actually in tailoring, it's the same thing, right? Like, you know, you'll walk past someone in the street and be like, oh, he looks nice and sharp or he's dapper or all these kind of superlative <laughs> words that, that right. are kind of um, pretty, you know, broad brushstrokes. 
to the guy interested in it, a little way you do your tie or the way you, the width of your shoulder, like makes huge differences, you know? That's a really good point. And I think yeah. it's really interesting. And equally, I'm drawn, that's why I like, it's funny, Goodfellas is an interesting segue into that thought because gangster films, Western films, war films are all genres. And actually a Western film, if John Wayne is a, um, you know, a Confederate soldier rather than, a, you know... Union. A, yeah, whatever it might be, sure. that changes the whole dynamic. It's still to the outside world, John Wayne playing a cowboy, which is just what he does. But yeah. to, the, to the guy who's into it and the person who's interested in that genre, it, it's a huge deal. And right. that was interesting to me. So, yeah, so I'd wear suits to school and uh, they weren't crazy expensive. Like I said, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't... Uh, don't want to give people the impression I was dressing like expensively. I was always just picking up bargains and throwing it together and buying vintage stuff or whatever it was. And then um, I went up and down Savile Row until someone gave me a job. And I got super lucky. Uh, someone let me clean a stock room for six pounds an hour. And that's what I did. Is and that, hold on, I, is that a normal thing? Because I, I think one of the things, and this is maybe this is like a highlight to your work ethic or what, but um, in most cases, if you really want to be a part of an industry, you can't really just walk in and say train me right i mean th- is this this isn't jiro dreams of sushi this is a a, a tough industry oh. Savile Row is is not you know the most open door place yeah so actually uh, everywhere else i walked into told me to get lost basically <laughs> there was the only one place that would let me that would give me a chance and i didn't i went in not pitching myself to be a tailor or wanting to be a tailor i just said listen you know i'll i'm um, i just would like some form of money to live on and um you know the minimum requirement would be lovely and i'll do anything i'll sweep the floor i'll learn how to so if that's what you want me to do i just wanted to get into that epicenter and just be there right. and be around it and then work it out from there and then the guys i would work with were all kind of like old boys and they were like jake you're what are you doing? <laughs> you're throwing your life away man like you know the, the guys that are working there yeah they're like don't do this Go to uni, do something else. And I was, you know, adamant I wouldn't, but I I ended up uh, applying to university whilst working. And I used to go to uni three days a week and go to work four days a week. And then at night, I'd work in a recording studio, just, uh, you know, opening the door to people, picking up the phone, helping with, you know, equipment. And I did that to find myself at uni. I'd studied English literature, which was the one at Goldsmiths, which is... Uh, Perhaps another podcast conversation, but a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful university in Southeast London that uh, has got incredible alumnus like Vivian Westwood and all the YBAs, um, some fantastic bands and designers and things like that. And it was a really unusual place and a really, having gone to a very straight-laced school where one wears suits at 16, right. it was just eye-opening and amazing and to study something I was really passionate about. Um, very much kind of like do what you want, sort of like rebellious university yeah, or kind okay. of yeah yeah and it's funny because actually how i got in there i had terrible a levels because i um i had been focused on a levels are your testing to get into the yeah. school so when you're 18 you do your final test and that gotcha. kind of de- de- kind of determines what university you'd go to and so i had terrible a levels because i would i remember being in psychology class and saying to miss bamford uh, who was very supportive of me probably too much so um oh i'm gonna have to leave the class in about 10 minutes i've got to go and play a show in brighton <laughs> oh Grantham, uh, okay, just make sure you do homework. You know, that, that was my life. And I would just be skipping school, just go and play shows and go visit my label and stuff like that and, you know, do photo shoots. And I was just A-levels. I wasn't very academic anyway, so it was a good opportunity just to, you know, bury yeah. myself in something else. And um, 
so that was it. And so I had terrible A-levels and I went to this open day there to kind of figure out what course might be right for me or how it even, if I had to resit exams. And I'm in the queue for art history just to find out about the course. And there's a gentleman looking a bit lonesome on to my left wearing a lovely tailored jacket and sitting there and just looking a bit kind of, yeah, lonesome. So I popped over and asked him about his course and it turned out he convened English literature. And I explained that I had terrible A-levels and he asked me why I had bad A-levels. And I said, well, you know, I'd been playing this band. He said, what kind of band? And I said, well, I like, you know, kind of like Black Flag, kind of the Smiths. And he was like, wow, they're my favorite bands. He said, what do you read? And I said, oh, you know, I like Bukowski and Carver and Fante and Chiva. And he said, oh, these, they're the books of my course. Um, uh, you know, I'll offer you an unconditional place, which unconditional means it doesn't matter what your your grades were if you can start in a month. And I said, so yeah. you just clicked with the professor. Was, and that my point wasn't to sort of say how wonderful I was. It was more what a fantastic place Goldsmiths is because it's so that's the only university you can swan into the open day, talk about Black Flag, and they can say, you know, uh, come come to our university. And it's an amazing, it's part of the University of London, and it's a small kind of unusual campus. But anyway, I digress. No, there, there's something that's really interesting about what you mentioned, because as I've known you over the years, you're very empathetic and, uh, and conscious of people who are off on their own. Mm. And I, I, do you know where that comes from or something? Because there's, it, it, it's, it's not always the nicest, per, nicest dressed person in the room, and I think you know, you have this very warm character about you where you're, more often I think you're searching for the person in the room that no one is talking to. No, oh, mate, I'm glad you noticed that. What? You're going to make me well up. No, I mean, I was just, I'm just curious, where do you think that comes from? Um, yeah, I suppose uh, my my little brother was born uh, with a disability. Um, immensely proud of him. He has Down syndrome. He's an incredible guy, and is um, oh shit, I'm really welling up. Excuse me. No, it's fine. Uh, is has justified all expectations and is now. Um, He's a pretty successful actor. He's a successful actor, which He's is so I'm so amazing. Like proud of BBC. That's right. That's right. He was the he was his uh, he was in the Christmas special of the series that he's in. It was the number one show of the uh, of the period of the christmas period what what show it's called call the midwife yeah and uh he plays a character called reggie and uh he, which you know there's so much talk at the moment and correctly so about me too and you know oscar's so white but there's no one flying the flag for disabled people in uh, in media and in culture and in you know i guarantee you there's probably not a single wheelchair in that oscar's room right and Interesting. uh it's to to be born with a disability and to be uh to conquer it and own it and be the most uh, loving, generous, warm person who, regardless of that, isn't given an opportunity. I always have have felt immense um, sympathy for, and you know, to see him in a room and uh, had to work as hard as he does. I don't know. Just perhaps that gave. Perhaps that was my my. Um, hmm. You know, I can see how hard it is for him socially sometimes, not for any fault of his own, only because of the opportunities people give him. And I just, perhaps that's it for me. Sure. I mean, uh, but that sounds like it's charity. It's not. It's just. Uh, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that in the slightest. Yeah. I, but do you think that maybe that's where some of, and we'll talk about your career here, where your career has built up? Because I think there's something about putting, and this may sound trite, but I'm really serious. There's something about putting on a suit and putting on a well made garment that, actually does change your mood it changes how totally. you feel about yourself how yeah. you how you look i mean um yeah totally it's funny i had this conversation you're, earlier you're part of that you're you're a person who's actually kind of helping change that person's mood by dressing them yeah so totally so i guess um you know unfortunately 
selling tailoring isn't like a get rich quick scheme uh, it's uh, <laughs> no, a lot of a lot of hard not. work and uh, very complicated at times it's kind of a weird mix of like science and uh, art and politics and, and all sorts yeah, of stuff politics and relationship <laughs> and and um, you know what we did with Anglo Italian which obviously the company I mean no, we're jumping to the, kind of the end you're fine no no this is okay. good uh, what we did with Anglo Italian, the idea was that you know we I'd been fortunate enough to be uh, to work for the Armory, which is this amazing, amazing company. Um, in I did three years in Hong Kong, I did two years in New York, which is where we worked together. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Oh. And uh, I was lucky to be there at probably like you know not to be disparaging about it now because it's still a fantastic, uh, strong, strong, strong store and a fantastic place to to uh, of course to shop. But it's uh, I think I was there the golden days of its kind of its early days when it was really like so exciting to work there. I had the yeah. fortune to work with Alan C and Mark Cho and Ethan Newton, who were these like three musketeers just like doing something totally invigorating and honest and approachable. And mm. I was this like D'Artagnan that they foolishly let in and uh, got to hang around with them. And uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. And so I was I had been I'd been fortunate enough to um to get accustomed to wearing handmade tailoring. And honestly speaking, it's just like nothing like it. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing it that does can't be emulated. change how you feel about yourself. Totally. And Especially something that it's that's made for you, yeah, totally. or, or, or or even altered for you. Yeah, I agree. And and but for me, there were some basics that I just w- was clocking, which was okay. Hand making is just better than machine making. It just feels better. It's got a wonderful je ne sais quoi mm-hmm. that. Um, you just can't replicate and can't emulate. And especially in this era of like technology and, um, you know, mechanization pattern cuts. Yeah. (laughs) It's something that like just can't be improved on. It's so natural. It's so organic. It's just its own thing. And so I like that, but I also thought, you know what, wouldn't it be nice to offer this more sort of democratically or more like, uh, more approachably. Sure. And so, that was it. We do one block of jacket only. We do two types of shoulder, which is a slightly more um, cleaner version called Rolino and a slightly, uh, and the Neapolitan classic shoulder, which is Balakamiccia. These are the offerings that you have at Anglo-Italian? Yeah. So we just do the one jacket, two shoulders, three types of pocket, jet, flap, and patch, lined or unlined. And we do an all or nothing policy, which is you either have the whole thing lined or you have just a little strip at the back. That's mm-hmm. it. You get three choices of button, light, mid, and dark horn. Um, you can choose one or two pleats on your trousers, side tabs or brace buttons, and that's it. And as a result, we can offer something that's handmade in the collars, armholes, and lapels, um, which is really rare, rare it counts. Obviously, full canvas that floats, handmade buttonholes, which are beautiful, and hand-stitched linings and hand-stitched details, but for a price that we th- that I would pay. And that was super important to me, that I, I if I was going to start something on my own with obviously talking about aesthetic as well you know my aesthetic and the way I like to wear proportionally my jackets um then it had to be handmade and it had to be a price that me and my friends could afford and I felt that was super important and that's it if you're a regular Blamo listener you know that I have always been obsessed with watches people ask me all the time Jeremy what's the best watch for my money what's a good watch do I go buy this brand Well, over the past few years, I have fallen in love with Weiss Watch Company out of Los Angeles, California. Founded in 2013 by the master watchmaker himself, Cameron Weiss, they're the most vertically integrated watchmaker in the United States. What does that mean? It means that the design, parts, and assembly are done under one roof by one company. They're not buying a movement from somewhere else, slapping their name on it, and calling it their own, like other brands. 
for watchmaking, this is a big deal, and they have created some of the most beautiful and elegant watches I've seen in ages. I've been wearing the American issue Black Dial Field Watch, and it's a stunner. Each watch is a bespoke piece that is crafted by Cameron Weiss in an over 60 hour process. You know, it's kind of cool to be able to chat with the person making your watch. I never really thought of that until now. Honestly, my favorite part about this is I can just wear it and not worry about it. You don't need to baby it. You wear it, you enjoy it, you move on. It's how a classic American watch should be. Right now, Weiss is offering a free engraving for all Blamo listeners with their new watch. Yes, an engraving. Because if you're going to buy a nice watch, don't you want to customize it? So go to WeissWatchCompany.com and enter promo code BLAMO at checkout. That's WeissWatchCompany.com, W-E-I-S-S, WatchCompany.com, and enter promo code BLAMO at checkout. Yeah, because there's something, I mean, there's a couple things that you mentioned that I want to dive a little bit deeper into, because the world of tailoring in general, it shouldn't be, but unfortunately at times it can be, it can feel really elitist. And sometimes that's because of the price of the garment itself or the barrier of entry, you know, when just how, you know, you made a joke about like an old boys club, like these tailors in Savile Row, you know, there are places, um, and, and maybe it's just how, how exciting tailoring can be at times, but I'll ask, uh, I think I was in Italy with you mm. and I had asked a guy, uh, and I know it wasn't a language barrier, but I'd asked him about his suit and he didn't want to tell me where it was from. And that's really, it, there was nothing wrong about it, but it, they're like that vibe to me is I was like, well, wait, like I, I want to I be in this club too. And I think sometimes people have those experiences with tailoring and it, they, they want to belong. They want to be a part of it. And I think what you're doing at Anglo Italian is, is that. Is, yeah, it's funny. Our customer is really interesting in that we get guys who wear bespoke stuff. You know, the moment I realized I thought we had a business, it was like day three of the shop being open. And uh, one guy was being fitted in, in your shops in, in my shop in London. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's all right. And uh, Alex, my business partner, who's uh, obviously the Italian part of Anglo Italian, um, he, he, he was fitting a gentleman at the front of the shop and I was fitting a gentleman at the back of the shop. And one of the gentlemen had a British, like a London Savile Row tailor on, and a gentleman at the front had a Neapolitan tailor on. And we put our garment on them, our master garment, because I said, we just have the one block. And there was this moment right. that the penny dropped to both of them kind of at the same time. And they were just looking at the garment and they were like, um, what's the price? And like, well, it's, you know, Freddie swears about a thousand, Ray Tomez is about a thousand three hundred. And where is it made? It's made in Italy. He's nodding, by the way. Yeah, and so this no is me nodding. See. And uh, <laughs> it's like, okay. And just this just moment of realization. It's like, okay, I'll take one you know and it's, so we attract a guy who already has an amazing bespoke wardrobe and is used to having all the kind of the best 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 expensive tailoring but we're also we're also you know getting a lot of guys who are younger and it's their first made to measure and we're we're really pulling customers from both ends of the market which, uh, which i, I want to really highlight odd. that brands and tailoring companies they don't do like say if you're in the united states is yeah. my perspective no, sure. if you're keton yeah. That is the top of the top of the top. Mm. And, you know, I think I, I was there in the, the other day, and this is ready to wear, $16,000 sport coat. Yeah. And that, I, I've, Keton is great. I've seen some of their factories. I know it's, it's handmade. It's yeah. wonderful. But, like, that's not, that's not fun. That's not approachable. It was actually, like, kind of a gross fabric, too, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think, you know, I, uh, so Alex um, used to work at Keton. He was there for five years. That's and right. It, so, yeah, so... Uh, absolutely it's uh 
not to say anything negative about those guys, what they do is obviously phenomenal. Mr. Pony, who was the founder, was visionary because what he did. Yeah, Chiro, he, that's right. Chiro, exactly. He paved the way for what we do in some respects, which is that really good quality ready to wear garment, right? So, yes, I agree. I, 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 I would never cough up. 16k for a sports jacket but yeah. you know obviously lots of people do and um and there, there's nothing wrong with that yeah, but i think there's not our customer right yeah and that's also those people that are buying that they're at the top already yeah. and i feel like what i like so much about anglo italian mm. is yeah like what you were saying earlier and that a lot of people may not realize if you go so and this is i'm talking to the listener here if you go to a tailor in um say italy or in england or some of these places in most cases, they will do whatever you want. And certain parts in Italy, they'll only do what they want. Yeah. And I think you guys are this nice sweet spot mm. and that, you know, kind of... Sid Mashburn does this in the U.S., but I think you guys have really nailed this down in that yeah. you have a good explanation and translation of what your style is mm. and also not having too many bells and whistles sure. for someone to mess up and so, look like a clown. So I, le- I learned <laughs> that bad habit from the Italians, and I really respect that, you know, we, I said, you know, we're not doing this to to get rich. It's uh, we love it. We love this. For me, is the ideal way of wearing tailoring. It's soft but clean. It's proportionally, you know, we have a lot of drape, but it's relevant. It just treads this line of classicism and and relevance. And I think that's hmm. often lost in tailoring. I think. One complete, it's the clunky term for tailoring is used as classic clothing, right? Classic clothing to me sounds like you're going to a car show with 1920s Bugattis <laughs> or something, you know? Like, right, okay. I hate the term. And equally, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the kind of um, that more brash approach to tailoring. You know, only like three years ago, you open a magazine and there's a 16 year old kid with a shotgun in a country field wearing a two piece suit with a scantily clad model draping off his arm. That was yeah. the way the tailoring was presented. And I think what the armory did was to sort of like shatter that illusion and it was bringing real people to wear garments and to see, right. like, oh, that's how it actually looks in the wild. And you can be a real human being, not a 16-year-old with, with money that seems to have fallen out of the sky with a you know, vintage Jaguar in the background. It's just totally <laughs> ridiculous. And I feel, I feel strongly that that's the case. I feel strongly that you know, we, we opened a shop and in 2018, that's... Um, like almost a crazy thing to do when we were telling people, yes, we're going to open a tailoring shop. It's like, okay, so a dead medium in a dead, uh, yeah. in a dead format of, you know, of selling you guys are crazy. But for me, we do it the old school way with hopefully people, our customers agree of, of integrity, honesty, transparency. And for me, that means being there six days a week, you can come in from 11 till seven Open the door. If your button falls off, we'll sew it back on. If you want to just ask a question about a fabric or when's my jacket coming in, we'll tell you, right? And right. it's a wonderful, um, a wonderful experience. And the community we've been able to like harbor, it's just fantastic. Customers come in just for coffee and to chit chat. And, uh, you know, even today in New York. And what- th- you're okay with that? Because yeah. I know the thing is, the reason why you'd said that, because place, some places aren't. Sure, you, sure. you walk in and you want to talk to the person, you want to learn a bit about them. Yeah. Some places are like, if you're not buying, you know, with all due respect, leave. Yeah, you know, uh, absolutely right. And I've had that. I remember once I was in, you know, just in jeans and, uh, you know, barber jack or something, walking around. I went into a shop in London. I said, oh, cool. Can I see your, you know, it was a uh, tailoring shop. Can I see the fabrics downstairs? And they said, oh, I'm sorry, that's just for customers, you know. And I was like, really? Oh, well, okay. See you later. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's just odd. And I, I hate that mentality. I, and obviously, you know, we respect our customers 
immensely. We appreciate them. They keep us in business. They keep us fed and let us do something we absolutely love. But also, like, we need to be respected too, right? Alex has a great expression used, which is if you want to be a king, if you want to be treated like a king, you have to act like a king, you know? <laughs> which I think is a lovely expression. And it means, uh, you know what? Understand that we're humans too, right? And yeah. uh, that, you know, we have time. We, ha we, you know, we have customers to fit, and if we, if it's just, we're happy to talk as long as it's appropriate, right? Yeah, so, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, we're cool. It's nice. It's really nice. That's great. And one of the things that uh, I had mentioned this a little bit before, before we started recording, yeah. that I like that you guys are doing is so to me, menswear and the whole hashtag menswear movement, and when everyone was wearing suits and maybe a little bit, a little bit crazy, bizarro sort of suits of flair everywhere and things like that that is definitely not the sort of the standard anymore nowadays you see people that are just trying to be comfortable or there's mm. all the street wear and yeah. you know shoes that you wear for one hour and then you put back in a box and you guys i feel not that you're street wear and not that you're you know all flair mm. crazy uh suiting but you guys walk this nice line that's much more approachable and casual clothing sure. like i mean a lot of your stuff is with denim which yeah, is yeah. really nice so obviously you know uh, i design everything right so i design the cut of the denim the the which is like a jacket. really nice high-waisted oh, somewhat you know oh, slimmer man. leg we it's a great super gene. well with it thank you thank you thank it's you a great gene but my point wasn't to sort of like you know uh congratulate myself it was more to say that you know it's deeply personal the shop you know we anglo-italian is is veiled for alex and jake right and <laughs> okay uh, and there's more to it than that in that you know for me the golden era of tailoring was when italians look to the english for their uh for their kind of um palette that it didn't have to be the bizarro, which is a great word I'm definitely <laughs> going to use in future. Uh, didn't have to, doesn't have to be so obvious. And they were making soft jackets that were well proportioned um, with an English palette, and that's really kind of the trick that what, what we do. And an English palette would be sure. So like somber tones of muted greens, muted browns, grey, navy, khaki. Just really wearable stuff. Yeah, and most of that fabric is, and I, I mean, I know you know this, but I'm saying mm. this for the listener too. Most of that fabric is not like a super 200 yeah, shiny yeah. stuff. It's it's honest, honest stuff. Yeah, it's and very relaxed. We're so lucky yeah. to work with amazing merchants and mills that support us, so we get to do our own developments, and so you know our own our own palette. It's coming from us, and there's a consistency there. But you know, I live in 2018, and I want to wear tailoring because I love it and I want to fly the flag for it. But also I want to go to the pub and not look like I've just stepped out of, you know, 1975. You know, yeah. I think uh, whilst I respect and buy and uh, reference uh, and borrow from vintage, mm -hmm. I feel strongly that tailoring should be relevant because if it wants to just survive, if it wants to be, if it wants to continue and it's a craft that I love and it's, a, it's an industry that I love, then it has to remain relevant. And I can't get my head around over a pastiche a pastiche of dress. I think that you need to keep progressing it. And we do it very subtly. You know, we, we really tread a fine balance between a very classic jacket, handmade, etc., well-proportioned, but palette and combinations and that are relevant. And that, for me, is what we're all about. Right. Um, so I know I'm asking this because I know people are going to be mad if I didn't ask sure, this. Sure. If I come to your shop and I'm like, I really like the Anglo-Italian look, the feel... Um, what would be the first things that I would need to get? Okay, that's a good question. So if you were to come to Anglo-Italian and 
you know, the first things to pick up, I would say in terms of tailoring, navy blazer is we can't keep those in stock and gray twister trousers we also can't keep those in stock hold on one second what are gray twister oh trousers? sorry so um like a fresco like a yarn that's been twisted up and has its kind of keeps this sort of uh less sooty oh, okay you know no, i know exactly what you mean yeah. then. Um, when i think sooty i think like shiny sheen yeah this is a little bit more rugged, yeah, perhaps. Exactly. So we just okay. we use texture really interestingly. I think so. We we use a lot of wool in summer. We use a lot of wool and linen blended. So it's got mm-hmm. this beautiful hand uh, crunchiness of linen, that dryness of linen, but it keeps its shape a bit more. Okay. Uh, trousers, this twisted yarn, like I was saying. Um, but honestly, we do a whole range. There's customers that will come in and love the outerwear that we develop. So we do some amazing raincoats that are made down in Puglia. We do uh, polo shirts we make in Naples. That again, we just we do. It's based off an old picture of Agnelli. It's got a pocket. It's got Gianni Agnelli. Gianni Agnelli, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And it's got a uh, button-down collar, long sleeve, worn under tailoring. Perhaps with our jeans, which again are just having a bit of a moment at the moment. We can't keep those in stock either. Um, and yeah, it's a, a look that you can wear a pleated trouser and a soft jacket and look relevant. I hope without fustiness um, and without gimmick. And yeah. It's really important. No gimmicks. No. Um, what would I mean? Can you? What do you mean? What would be not a gimmick? So I guess I get maybe maybe I'm overly purist because of no, I, I titled my shop Anglo Italian and um, it's about you know a golden era of uh, you know a, a golden ethos of approach. Well, every shop needs to have a foundation as to why they're a shop. That's yeah. okay. I guess stuff like throwing a Milanese buttonhole made in China on a jacket that has never been to Milan, I find really odd. You know, like kind of appro- appropriating items that, you know, have like symbolism and have history, I think. That but weren't intended for the use that they're being utilized or, for? Or, or that are, but just like, just without thought. Mm. I think it's, I think that it's nice just to, you know, have an ethos and stick to it and not to, yeah, not to throw gimmick on things. Well, it's interesting because... Um, that's a very subtle gimmick. I appreciate, but, you know, silly buttons on things. And, no, it's and, fine. You know, uh, red buttonholes is probably the most ex- easy example of uh, an, an early two thousands gimmick that I wish, uh, you know, wasn't still a thing. Yeah, that, that's true. There are brands that do that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'll, right now it feels like a lot of the companies that are you know crushing it in terms of the streetwear stuff are brands that have their label everywhere right sure and obviously that's not what you guys do at all but your denim for example i Mm. feel like and i we had mentioned this earlier but i kind of wanted to go a little bit into it Mm. because denim is i would say probably the most like widely worn across every class genre demographic of type of person but for some reason your guys denim is just really really good and this is apart from the Simon Crompton permanent style oh, yeah. sort of thumbs up. I mean, yeah. I really like that denim, and I'm a kind of a picky person. So before we before we set up the shop, we spent a year um, developing everything from designing the shop itself, uh, finding the location for it. Obviously, mm-hmm. we spent a year designing the jacket cut. Uh, I a year of, designing the cut. What is it? I mean, so we sampled and we sampled and we sampled for around ten months. Okay, until we were happy that it reflected what we were, and it was fitting people well and that it was perfect in our eyes that's a long time to develop a jacket but yeah that's we, that's quite a long time compared to what a lot of other businesses would sure. do and but it's it's it was we knew that it was going to be the epicenter of our offering and that it had to be if we were going to go into business and to expect people to pay us money for things that 
we had to make it perfect. But simultaneously, I was, so I was in Naples two days a week, uh, but the rest of the time I was waitering. And Were you I, really? Mm, and it was one of the most humbling, uh, I, was, I was 20, how old was I? 27, I'd obviously had uh, been living a fantastic life, living in New York, being a fashion buyer and all this yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. And then there I was with a bunch of 18-year-olds getting bossed around and spilling drinks on people and all this sort of stuff and trying to support myself while we set up the business. And, you know, there was nothing more reassuring than looking around the room and seeing people in tailoring and seeing not being part of that rarefied world where everyone knows the serial number for every Omega that's important. And, you know, that's, sort of, you know, <laughs> sure. like it, that it was that it, I was out there seeing a lot of people um, dressed in tailoring or dressed in denim. And it just spurred me on to a try and be successful and try and set up a shop that functioned uh, so that I wouldn't have to maintain my my poor uh, waitering skills, but also to to it was just market research of what was out there and what people actually wear. So as, as a waiter, you, I mean, obviously you're serving, but you're r- able to understand more what every yeah. single person's wearing. Oh, everyone's wearing denim. Yeah. You know, like everyone who comes in, they're wearing denim with a sports blazer. And that's, and it sounds like it's, that's an obvious thing to say. Of course it is, but you know, that's it. So let's make the best pair of denim we can. And that, those, we did three washes. Again, we try to simplify everything we can. Uh, did three washes. We worked with Kuroki Mills in Japan and light, medium, dark, it was that simple. We sampled and we sampled and we sampled and we sampled washes and weights and weaves and um, cuts. And you know, I, I got to the point with the cut where I was. It wasn't where where it wasn't wearing where I wanted to go, and it wasn't looking good enough. And I just got an old pair of vintage Levi's, which was huge on me, and yeah. I just pinned it into oblivion i pinned it into the perfect pair of trousers for me <laughs> okay i then sent it to our workshop it got made up as a sample and i just it, it was like magic i just put it on everyone all my friends i could cycled around london on my little vespa uh, motorcycled around london just going to every friend's office putting them in these jeans and everyone was like wow these are great and i did the same i had the jacket with me and the jeans with me i was putting them on everyone i possibly could just yeah. to check the fit and uh that was it and i wish i could say more than that but from that sample onwards, bang, we just went into production and, you know, we've just been hammering it. Wow. And now the next thing I'm working on is like an off-white wash. That'll be the fourth wash. And then I think we'll probably just, that'll be it. Hopefully they'll stay as classics. Yeah. Everything that we do in the shop, we try to maintain as, you know, hopefully it's classic enough and relevant enough that in five years' time, you'll still be able to wear it. Right. One of the other things you do, and we're, um, I won't go too crazy on all of your offerings, but... Mm. You guys do a really great polo shirt. Thank you. Um, and for someone like me, so my shoulders are really square and I, you know, look a little bit like Jughead. Um, you guys have this polo with, with raglan sleeves. And when, when mm. you think of... Um, oh, the one I'm wearing now, you mean this guy? Well, that's, that's the, the cashmere one, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, that's fire. That's, thank you. That's thank a you, sick thank polo. You. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But you guys, you know, I mean, you have a pretty huge range of, of you know, like these polos that are mm. obviously... Really casual. And and I know it sounds silly why I continue to hone in on this casual stuff. Mm. It's just because, like, that's what I want to wear. But I think one of the reasons why I maybe migrated a little bit away from um, what I was wearing at the Armory was I just, like, didn't have time. And, and yeah. it didn't feel as comfortable, I mean, as obviously what I'm wearing now, which is, you know, a Drake shirt, but a you know, yeah, pair totally. of Levi's. Certainly. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, we, we really try our best to tread that fine line that doesn't 
mixed genres. You know, I don't really have any aspirations to wear sneakers with my suit. I, I suits are suits, sports jackets are sports jackets. They, but they don't have to be so fusty. They don't have to be so linear. You can still wear it with denim and look great, and with boat shoes, and you can still dress classically and elegantly without without having to resort to kind of what I would refer to as gimmick. You know? Right. I, it can. It exists. Right. It's about palette and proportion, and that's kind of all you have to work with. So that's good. So we're we're starting to wrap up a little bit, but I wanted to go and just getting started. Just getting started. <laughs> Part two. Oh yeah. Well, well, you can do a second one sometime. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, I, big things I want to ask. Obviously, where do people get your stuff? Because right now you're doing trunk shows where in New York. Sure. Um, but you have a shop in London, mm-hmm. and so, otherwise, for on, the U.S. is the only trunk show. Yeah. So it's funny. We didn't really intend. We we vehemently believed on not wholesaling. Just old school. Come to the shop. Get mm-hmm. fitted have Alex and myself, you know, find out what you need and sort you out. Right. Um, online we sell. And again, our website, you, just, you land on it and it's just product. It's, we're not telling you how to pack a suitcase. I'm not telling you, uh, you know, where in Cuba you should eat. I'm just, we're focusing on what we do, which is product <laughs> and presenting it, presenting it the best way uh, we possibly can. Um, New York started because I had a wonderful, good customer uh, who just kept breaking my balls and saying, when are you coming to New York? And eventually oh, yeah? I caved and was like, I'm coming to New York. And I fit him. I, I showed up in a hotel room. I, I had no intentions of really growing it to where it is now. But I put it up on Instagram and said I was in New York. And then subsequently just messages and messages and messages just came in. Oh, on Instagram. It was crazy. And it's funny. We, it was a wonderful trip. And my wife was with me. Laura was with me. And um, she, who's a much more respected uh, uh much better fashion buyer than than I am, but she, um, yeah, she was the secretary. She would answer the calls of the, of the phone. She would make sure customers were you know seated and ordered and fed, and I was just fitting people. And it was like a conveyor belt. I had I, to got to the point where I'd fit everyone in a row, and then I would choose fabric in a row, <laughs> choose styles. It was crazy. It was like ten people in there. Then it proceeded just to pour down with rain, and there's ten of us all in this room, and we're all bonding over tailoring and you know, just getting to know each other. And we all jump in. Each, a couple of guys had driven down to the hotel I was staying at. And we all drove to Brooklyn near to one of the guys' house. And we got a table. It was President's Weekend or something like that. Labor Day or something. One of the holidays. Oh, yeah. This was a year or so ago, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, we jumped in a car and we all ate pizza together. And That's pretty rare. It's just amazing. It's yeah. Just am- and it was one of those moments where, I, I, you know, you, you know, you know uh, me personally, but I'd always had, living in New York, I'd always had sort of mixed feelings about it. I kind of... I liked it a lot and had some amazing experiences. Got to meet my heroes, which is an, an overstatement. And I got to, uh, you know, work for a fantastic company and help grow it and make amazing friends and have amazing experiences. But I never really got my head around New York. Maybe I left too early. I'm not sure. But I was always, be- it's always been a, it never ended with a full stop. It's still something that kind of like I interesting. Yeah. It, no, I think it's, about. it's a. I love this city, mm. but there's so many times where I'll be like, I hate this city. I'm moving. Mm. This place sucks. Yeah. And then one day I'm like, well, you know. I really love this place. An interesting, <laughs> a friend once told me, he said, if only, you know, it would make much more sense if you guys didn't speak English. You know, I, maybe that shared language makes me feel like there's more, like I understand it more, but actually it's a very, very different culture. I don't know. Uh, yeah, actually, no, that's an interesting point. Because I, I, would, I would say there's definitely the New York culture in general. It's a polarizing part of American culture mm. and can be very in your face, very obnoxious but also at the same time 
um, closed off, I would say, to, to yeah. things. I don't, you know. It's, it depends. It's yeah. funny. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was about it, but I, I just would feel quite, I don't know. Disconnected from it, I'm not sure. But, um, but you know, so, so we're having this pizza, and it was one of those, I think people clunkily call it a New York moment or something. Is that a thing, or did I just make that up? No, you're exactly right. Okay. There's so, New York moments. And, you know, if it wasn't that, then, you know, all my days off at the Armory, I would spend every day off at the library, the New York Public Library, and I would get every single apparel arts, every single worm of Apparel arts is the, the classic menswear catalog what, GQ? from, like, the GQ 30s. used to be, right? Is it, was it GQ or was it Squire? What Esquire, it? I it believe. Squire? Yeah. And... Um, yeah, so I would just take all these magazines, M Magazine, Womovoc, any 80s magazine, menswear stuff, I would sit there and just leaf through it every day. And that was a fun memory of mine. Getting to meet Mr. Ralph and Mr. Jerry Lauren was like hugely, uh, uh, left a huge impression. And then bumping into Scott Schumann on a bike. Uh, sitting oh, outside, yeah? Yeah, and just, just striking a conversation. And he's become a friend who comes to see us in London now. So um, There you go. Which is... Which is those are all New York moments, yeah, by the way. Those were beautiful. Everything adds up, and it's all perfect. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but simultaneously, you have to put up with the J line being, being uh, out oh, of action. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Being out of action for like three days, and like you know, a rat just you know marauding towards you. Oh and... yeah, that's what makes New York great yeah. and horrible at the same time is because all of that stuff is right next to each other. Yeah, totally. You, you, the the beauty and the mm. grit and the gross crap They're is the same thing all there yeah and so that was it so eventually we took enough orders that it was really worth us coming back so we try our best to come back every six weeks uh some things slow us down like holidays and christmas and things like that but on the whole we're here every couple of months and it's just been growing and growing and growing and it's nice it's nice to come actually out of the shop and uh, get, you know, see something different and get a bit of perspective. Maybe more market research, I guess, seeing how everyone's wearing stuff. and Yeah, I think so. Just, you know, it's it's an odd experience. I feel very vulnerable on trunk shows, as, you know, which I guess I should probably call it now. But, it's, yeah, it's probably turned into a trunk show. I feel a bit vulnerable because I don't have my shop and I don't have the all the gum and oh, okay. the, the world that Anglo-Italian is. Because if you, you know, if you come to our shop, it's it's got a lovely terrazzo floor and it's got this kind of, like... Uh, curvy wall and it's all very um you know it's very sort of reflective of the product that we make and when i'm in a hotel room we get to stay at the mark which is a lovely lovely hotel and a fantastic base but yeah i feel vulnerable having people in the hotel room it's like i'm the world's worst salesman so they come up i'm like so uh how's your day would you like to see my jacket and I'm like, i remember a really lovely customer my my first new york customer he said, he said to me halfway through my terrible sales pitch, he was like, it's, I'm going to buy something. Don't worry. It's cool. I, I'm going to buy it. And I was like, okay, you don't have to. And he's like, no, no, no. It's really nice. I like it a lot. It's fine. And that's kind of my sales technique. I'm just like happy to show you everything that we do. And it's totally up to you if you want to buy one or not. You know, well, That's good. But I feel like in a hotel room, people feel obligated. And I don't know. That's, uh, well, that's, yeah, I would say anything you have to make an appointment for. That's just yeah. the general Which, which is totally not what we're about, right? Like right. in the shop in London, doors open. You can come in and leave as you please. We're totally chilled. You don't have to come and buy anything. You don't feel obligated. But in a hotel room, that changes things. But obviously, yeah. they're, coming to, they're coming to buy stuff. Otherwise, they wouldn't be booking in. So I need to get my head around that. <laughs> but, and you guys have an online store right yeah online store and um you know we we put up as much measurement as we can and we're super responsive so if you just send us a message hey jake i'm you know this size i wear this and that what size do you think i am we could pretty get back to you with you know with helpful stuff so and we're gonna try and grow we're gonna try and make it better and improve as much as we can but we're, we're only the businesses at time of recording businesses just turned nine months old so 
we're racing towards one year. We're gonna wait. Lo- it's only I could have sworn it's like two years old now. No, it's, uh, nine months. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I know because you know it's uh, May twenty fifth, and you know imprinted on my mind forever sure. now. The day we sure. opened, and it was funny because we we were super late. The builders took it, you know, whatever had delay on the marble on the terrazzo floor. And Laura and I and Alex, before the uh, opening party, were gluing the mirrors on about five to six. And we opened the door at six. And I was in like a tracksuit and just took my tracksuit off on the shop floor, put on my suit and welcomed guests. And it must have reeked of paint and, uh, you know, garments were everywhere. But it was this amazing party. It was fantastic. (laughs) I had a dream. This is crazy. I had a dream the night before. And the whole time we were setting up the shop, I I would wake up at two in the morning my heart beating out of my chest, like, oh my God, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. And I remember showing up, seeing the shop when the builders were nearly ready. They hadn't stained anything. We didn't have, like, stained the floors and things like that. Right, and they right. didn't have uh, any palm, any of our potted plants in there, potted plants in there, and we didn't have any garments. And I remember thinking, fuck, I've just paid a lot of money for a white, I've paid everything I've got for a white room. It's, what have I done? <laughs> and, um... Then the opening party, so the night before the opening party, I had this dream. I was like, okay, I'm, it's going to go really well, and, um, and I'm going to get lifted in the air, and people are going to cheer. And it was like, I remember waking up, and like, that's a fucking weird thought. That's never going to happen. And as I was stood on the table to kick everybody out, and there was like, we, we, everyone we invited to the party told us they couldn't come. So we were expecting like just me and Alex and Laura and Alex's girlfriend sitting there having you know champagne. <laughs> like, okay, we opened a shop. It was heaving. Dude, yeah, I saw there was people waiting outside. And, yeah. A dude walked past and he was like, oh, this looks cool. I'll be right back. And he brought his vintage, like, 70s Ferrari and he was just letting people drive it around the street. What? Yeah. And he was giving people tours around in it. What? And Yeah, everyone kind of banded together. The British guy? He's a British guy. Yeah, <laughs> wow. he's a dentist next door. He comes in and buys his ties from us. There you and, go. And... Uh, <laughs> I jumped on the table to kick everybody out because it was nine o'clock and the neighbors were getting pissed off. And a friend of mine hoisted me in the air and people started clapping. And I was like, this is surreal. I dreamed this. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that sounded very self-congratulatory. That's, no. Wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted to come across as, but... But that, I mean, that obviously all the, the work that you've been putting in is, is starting to pay oh, off. It was a wonderful moment. And just to get to that stage, you know, like starting, uh, starting cleaning stock rooms and then, um, you know, 10 years later, I'd always dreamed of having my own little shop where I could just, you know, if I wanted to make jeans, I could do it and have a place to sell it and a place to, you know, call my own. And right. um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, a moment for me. It was lovely. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's a good place to wrap it up there. Yeah. Thank so, you for having me. It's been yeah, thank lovely. You. It was an absolute pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao, ciao. Later. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like this episode, there's plenty more to dive into at blamopod.com. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, leave a review. It helps what others know and discover the show. Follow us on Instagram at blamopodcast or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. See you next week. <laughs>